Well, good morning. Um, my name is Ryan, and I'm the college pastor here at Northway, and I just want to welcome you. Um, if you're here with us worshiping, but if you're also in our overflow room and want to welcome those on Facebook Live as well, um, I always count it just an honor and a joy to be able to open up the Word of God and study it with you on a Sunday morning. So my wife Sarah, not too long ago, worked as a caseworker in foster care. And so her job was to, to be a support for the kids coming into care and be a support for the families as well. And what they would see from time to time is that they would have kids that would come into care that come from homes or houses with, with food insecurity. And what that meant was that these families did not necessarily know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't even know if there would be a next meal, so these kids would, would sometimes go hungry on days. And there was a, a certain little boy who came into care and was on Sarah's caseload. He was about four years old when he came into care, and he was from a home that had food insecurity. He didn't always know where that next meal was coming from, and he, there were times where he didn't have that meal, and he went hungry. And so he came into care, and he was placed with a family and this family loved him and cared for him and was able to provide for him uh, these meals that he would never have to go hungry again. He, he would always have food on the table. And so he was given this, this new life. And in his old life, he had food insecurity, but in this new life, he, he was able to, to have meals and to be fed and taken care of. But what they found was this little boy, they called him on, on several occasions, is when when the family wasn't paying attention or when everyone had gone to sleep, he would sneak into the kitchen and he would go into the pantry or into the cabinets or the refrigerator and he would start hoarding food and gathering food and go and sneak it and hide it in his room that he would then kind of eat sporadically whenever he wanted to. And on face value, it doesn't sound too bad, but the problem is this little boy had several food allergies. And so he was so young that he didn't quite understand the nature of those allergies, and he didn't know uh, that he wasn't really supposed to do that. And so he would hoard this food that sometimes was detrimental to his health. And, and so he'd hoard these things, and it, it was truly just a, a sad story with, with so many levels to it. But we see this little boy, and we want to just hold him and say, hey, buddy, you don't have to do that anymore. That, that was your old way of life. That was your old life. But now you have a new life. And you've got a family who cares for you. You have a family who, who loves you, who is faithful to provide for you. You don't have to live in light of your old life anymore. You don't have to hoard and sneak food. You can have food whenever you need it or whenever you want it. Now, now here's why I tell you this. This morning, we will be in Colossians chapter 3. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is encouraging this church of Colossae to, to let their new life shape how they walk. To, to let their identity shape their activity. He says, you had an old life and an old way of doing things, but in Christ, now you have a new life. And with a new life and this new identity comes a new activity. It means that you will live differently. With new identity comes changed activity. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3, or it's also on the YouVersion uh, Bible app, and it's also on the message map and on the screens as well. But before we get into our text, I want to give us a little bit of background on the letter and help us understand it better. So Colossians, like we said earlier, was, was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written while he was in prison. 
and he wrote it to the church at Colossae. Now, this wasn't a church that he created or, or helped start. It wasn't a place that he'd even visited, but it was started by uh, his friend, his co-worker, Epaphras. And Epaphras had recently visited Paul while he was in prison and given him an update on the church and how things were going. And in his update, he, he told him that there was this false teaching that was infiltrating the church this heresy that was penetrating the church and, and uh, people in the church were falling prey to this false teaching. And so Paul writes the letter of Colossians to help combat and fight against this false teaching. And, and we don't know exactly what this teaching, what all it entailed, but we know different elements based off of what Paul wrote, that there were these philosophical and mystical elements that included worshiping of angels and included a heavy emphasis on visions. There was also these legalistic and ritualistic elements that, that include an emphasis on Jewish traditions and these barriers that they would set around certain things like food and drink and festivals saying, you have to do these things, you have to do these things. If you want to experience the fullness of God, this is how you have to do it. And they had all these things. Some of these boundaries were even so extreme that they involved bodily harm. But Paul here says in the letter of Colossians says, these false teachers, they're puffed up and they're inflated with all this pride and ego, but it's, it's with no reason. That they have this, this arrogance, but it's rooted in their own sinfulness. And they think they're above every, everyone else, but in reality, what they have to offer is empty. And, and the most pressing issue for them, the, the thing that Paul's going to come back to and, and emphasize is that this false teaching was not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. That they were adding things to Christ, adding things to the faith. They were deviating from the central message of the gospel, which is Christ. And the result, he tells us in Colossians 2, 23, is these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says it looks good on the outside. They look super spiritual in the things that they're doing. It sounds nice, but in reality, it's just this self-made religion that is empty. It has no power to, to stop the indulgence of the flesh. It has no power for true salvation and life change. It is empty. And so Paul is going to spend the first two chapters of Colossians trying to bring them back to the central message of the gospel. He's going to lay a foundation of what is truly important. He's going to highlight the inefficiency and inability of these false teachings to save and bring life change. And he's going to show the sufficiency and the centrality of Christ himself. And so he, he's magnifying Christ. He, he starts in, in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He says, Christ is the very agent of creation that through him all things were created, but not just through him were they created, they were created for him. In him, all of creation is held together and sustained by his power. He's elevating and, and drawing attention and magnifying Christ. He, he says that, that for him, it, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, 
that he, in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells, that, that Christ is God and man. And, and we don't fully understand that. We can't get the divine mystery there. But what scripture teaches is that God or Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Paul elevates Christ. And he wants them to see that there's no deviating away from Christ. There's nothing else that will bring fullness in relationship with God other than him. And, and he wanted them to see that it's not just some one-time thing that they receive Christ and then they go about their lives and add things, take away things and, and kind of deviate away from him. He says, no, it's not just a one-time thing. In chapter two, verses six through seven, he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He says, no, this wasn't just some one-time thing. This is something that you live your daily life through. That, that you walk in Christ, that your life is rooted and grounded in Christ. He's the foundation of which everything is built upon. And he's gonna to continue to show the necessity of Christ by highlighting what their lives were like apart from Christ, by highlighting what their lives were like before they received the gospel from Ephesus and, and embraced Jesus. And, and in doing so, what he's showing us is showing us what our lives are like apart from Jesus as well. He's going to say that, that we've all sinned and we've all trespassed against a holy God. That there's this record of debt that's being held against us. This record of debt that's been recorded of, of every thought, every word, every deed and action that does not align with the character and the standard of God's holiness is being recorded as a record of debt against us and a record of our rebellion against a holy God. That, that we were by nature God's enemies, that he's gonna tell us that we were alienated from God, that, that we were hostile in mind and in deed, that, that we were in the domain of darkness and that ultimately we are dead and hopeless. This is life apart from Christ. But then he's gonna say, when you turn and trusted in Jesus, this glorious Jesus, everything changed that Jesus bore our sins on the cross and that on that cross through him, he reconciled us to God through his death. That through the blood of his cross, we now have peace with God. And that it's all centralized on the hope that we find in his resurrection, that, that just as Christ raised from the dead on the third day, he then became the firstborn of creation. That in him, through trusting in him, we too may be resurrected and brought to life. And he's going to tell us in, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He says, your trespasses, that, that record of wrong that is kept and, and shows your rebellion against God was taken and it was nailed to the cross of Christ. It was crucified on the cross of Christ, that you have forgiveness of sin through him, that, that you're delivered from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the Son, that, that in him there's forgiveness of sins and, and it's not meant to be lived in isolation. Paul's gonna say that you are are saved not just to God, but to a community of believers, that you are all knit together in Christ the head, that you form one body, the bride of Christ. 
And he says, I want you to hold fast in faith to this gospel. Hold fast to Christ. Don't let anyone come and add anything to that or take your gaze away from that. Hold fast to the gospel of Christ. Anything that teaches you and says you need something else is empty and it's powerless. And only once we understand this can Paul then translate or transition to how we live this life, to to what it looks like to to walk with Christ. And so chapter three becomes a pivot from where Paul is is, uh, built out a theology surrounding Christ. And now he's saying, hey, this is what it practically looks like. And so for us, the questions we ask are, if Christ has given me a new life, if Christ has given me a new identity, how does this impact my day-to-day? What is my daily life, life look like in light of this new identity in Christ? What does it look like to walk in Christ? And Paul's going to tell us this in chapter 3. And so let's begin by reading the first four verses in chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, hey, if you've got this new identity, if you have this new life in Christ, your sins have been forgiven by his blood, then this new identity will will translate into your daily life. With this new identity, set your gaze on the things above. Lift your eyes upwards. Set your minds on the things that are above. To to seek something is to orient your life towards that thing. It's to set your your heart's affections, your heart's desires to move towards that thing. It's to consume your mind with it. To aim your desires and fill your thoughts with that thing. He says, don't look to the things of earth. Don't set your mind and heart on the things of earth. Don't look to what the earth says and the world says are good and right and true. Don't look to what the earth will say will satisfy you and bring you peace and joy. So don't look to the wisdom of the world. Cast your eyes up. But if we are honest, it is so much easier to look to the things of earth, isn't it? It's so much easier to set our gaze on the things of earth. It's easy to to aim at achievement and productivity to to give a status and worth. It's easy to to look to what the world has to offer for for joy and peace and and satisfaction. It's easy to look uh, to the approval and affirmation of, of others. It's easy to let every whim and desire, everything that I think will bring me pleasure to dictate my actions. It's easy to consume our minds and our hearts with the things of the world. But Paul here, he says, no, no, lift your eyes upwards. Cast your gaze up to the heavens. Cast your gaze to Christ, who is there at the right hand of God, and he is seated at the right hand of God. Seated because of his work on the cross, it's finished. He has dealt with sin. He has dealt with death. His work is finished, and he is full power and authority that he is seated at the right hand of God in power and in sovereignty. And so we look and fill our minds with those truths. We remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, and and that he's nailed our sins to the cross. We look to the truth of his sovereignty and the the promises that are fulfilled in him. We set our minds on these things, and it it says, look and see yourself hidden with Christ. That there was a, a point in time where 
where you couldn't come into the presence of God because of your sin and because of your unrighteousness, that you were unable to come because of and face a holy God, but then Christ covered you with his righteousness, that you are hidden inside of him. And so that when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So now you are in relationship with God. You are hidden with Christ. That the language there says that you have been hidden, you are hidden, and you will be hidden in Christ for all eternity. Set your mind on that truth. Set your mind on the fact that that Jesus will return in full glory, that he will reconcile his bride, the church, and he will enter into eternity where we will dwell with our heavenly father and that we will share in the glory of Christ. We consume our minds with these truths. We cast our gaze upwards to Christ. And then from there, Paul is gonna give further instructions, some more practical things for us to do. So continuing in verse five, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, in in light of your new identity, in light of who you are in Christ, put to death your old life. Listen to the severity there. He doesn't say, In light of this new identity, uh, just do your best to not do the old things you used to do. Or or steer, do your best not to steer into your old life. He says, no, put to death your old life. Crucify your old life. And he gives, gives lists describing some of these things that describe our old lives. The first one centers around sexual morality. It's it's ranges from activity to internal disposition, to desires. And sexual morality being anything that goes against or outside the confines of God's design of marriage between one man and one woman. And he says, not just your outward conduct, though. It's, it's, it's your passion. It's your evil desires. It's, it's us lusting after things that are contrary to his design. He says, put those things away. The other list deals with relational sin. It deals with, with sins against our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, put away anger and and wrath, and malice. He calls us not to slander, speak poorly, and defame someone else's name. In fact, he says, don't even let any kind of of talk that is not uplifting and life-giving come out of your mouth. He says, don't don't deceive and lie one another. And and as we read these lists, the truth is we see ourselves, that these things describe us. That's why he says, that used to be your life. You used to live in that way. And because of that, that's why God's wrath was coming towards you. Even Paul says he struggles with covetousness in the book of Romans um, before he came to Jesus. And so, so my sin might look different than your sin, but the truth is we all have sinned and trespassed against a holy God. And what Paul's calling us to do is to put off these things. But here's what we can't do. We can't read these lists and lists like that in scripture and, and be discouraged over them. 
Paul doesn't list these things as disqualifiers for Jesus's forgiveness. He doesn't say if you've done these things or you fall into these things, then you're not, your sins aren't going to be covered by the blood of Jesus. He, 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 in fact, gives a similar list in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 that's actually more broad and, and more all-encompassing. But then he follows up that list with uh, verse 11 saying, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He's saying the same thing here. And such were some of you that that this used to be my reality, that this used to be our identity, that we used, this was our old life. We, we were sinners. We were by nature enemies of God. But by the blood of Christ, we've been cleansed. We've been washed away. Our sins have been forgiven. We have this, we put away our old self and we have this new life in Christ. And so he says, walk in this new life. Walk in the ways of Christ. And, and I don't know about you, but when I hear these things, as someone who's walked with the Lord for a time now, I'm like, Paul, I get it, but that's hard. I, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself struggling with the things of my old life from time to time. I find myself falling into them over and over again. And so, Paul, I hear you, but how is this even possible? And, and Paul's going to echo the same sentiment in Romans 7.15, where he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He's like, I know what I want to do, but I don't even do that. Or I know what I don't want to do, and I end up doing those things. It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. How are we then to put away this old life and walk in the new life? Well, I want you to think back to that little boy that I told you about earlier. How do you get this little boy not to sneak food? How do you get... Uh, this little boy to not seek food in light of his past life of having food insecurity? Well, for one, you take practical measures, right? Like you're gonna lock up things, you're gonna have better surveillance, you're gonna, you're gonna discipline when needed, and you're gonna communicate, hey, you don't need to do this, there's gonna be consequences if you do this, you're gonna do all these practical measures, absolutely. But what I believe you do first and foremost what I believe is most important, the thing that you continue to do as you take these practical measures is you convince this little boy that he has a family who loves him, who cares for his well-being, and who will faithfully provide for him. Because when he's convinced of these things, he won't live in light of his past life. He will live in light of this newness of life. So for us, how do we put off the things of our old life? Most definitely, we take practical measures, right? Like if, if, if I'm someone who struggles with alcoholism, I'm going to stay away from a bar. If, if I'm someone who struggles with sexual morality and pornography, then I'm going to have certain locks on my phone and have people help me with that. If I'm someone struggling with gossip and slandering other people with a certain group, when we get in that group, I'm going to distance myself from that group. So we most definitely take practical measures. But what we must do first and foremost, what is most important and the thing that we do consistently, even as we take practical measures, is I cast my gaze above. I cast my gaze to Christ. I fill my mind with the truths of his gospel. And as I'm fully convinced of the truth of his gospel, I become fully convinced that I have a heavenly father that loves me, that cares for me and my well-being, and who knows what's best for me. And as I believe this, my trust for God grows. 
And as my trust for God grows, I stop living in light of my old life and I start walking in the newness of life that he has for me. I trust his design for how things work best. I trust that he's gonna be my source for joy and for peace and for satisfaction. I trust that, that he's a righteous judge. So even if someone sins against me and offends me, I don't have to enact my own wrath and judgment because he is a just judge. And as my trust for him grows, my love for him grows. And as my love for him grows, my love for others grow. And as love grows, uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, deceit, it all fades away. And we become unified in Christ. We are able to put to death the old life, put off our old life, and then set our gaze to Christ. So we don't just put off these things though. Paul's gonna continue and tell us to put on other things. So let's read these last few verses, starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul here, he's going to give the imagery of changing clothes, saying you're going to put off other clothes and you're going to put on new clothes. Paul says that you have a new identity with Christ and with this new identity comes new activity. You no longer do certain things and you're going to do other things. And he's not saying you do these things and you put on these things to to earn your way to Christ, to to earn your identity. He says, no, you have a new identity in Christ, so then that changes your activity. You do these things because of your identity in Christ. He says that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those, Those phrases, those titles are given to Christ. Those are his attributes that are now descriptors of us that because we are his chosen ones, holy and beloved, we will live a certain way. This new identity brings uh, compassionate hearts, that we care for others, that we're kind to one another, that, that we have a posture of humility as we engage and interact with one another, that we're, we're meek, we're not abrasive, we're, we're patient with one another. And even when a brother or sister sins against me, we graciously forgive them because of the way that we've been forgiven. These should be descriptors of each of us, but again, the question is how? How can this be true of us? How do we put on these things? It's by casting our gaze to Christ. We lift our eyes from the things of the world and cast our gaze to Christ. We dwell on his truths and the truth of his gospel. And as we do this, our love for him grows. And what Paul tells us is that all these things are bound together by love. That as we look to him and find our love growing for him, we will find our love growing for others. And we'll love and trust his commands. 
and we'll then take care of others. And, and, and when others are hurting, it, it hurts us because we have compassion. We will value others so much that we'll be kind and, and gentle with them. And we will count others before ourselves. We will, we will have forbearance and be willing to forgive one another when they sin against us because that's the love that was distributed to us. And as we consumed with love, it says the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. That God's peace comes and reigns within our hearts so that, that it, it casts out and drives out any fear, any anxiety. That even when the world is falling apart around us, we have this, this peace within us that is rooted and confident in the promises of Christ. He also tells us that the word of Christ will dwell in us richly. That we consume our ourselves with the word of God, that we spend time in it. We fill our minds with it. We hide it within our hearts. We let it dictate how we live. We consume ourselves with it. We, we use it to encourage one another and lift one another up. We teach it to one another. We sing it to one another. That, that's why we do this on Sunday mornings. We come together, we sing praises to God, we sing of his truths, and it's praising and worshiping him, and it's also encouraging one another to look to him, to set our eyes and our gaze up to Christ. That's why we meet weekly with home teams where you get into a community and you study God's word together. That's the whole reason why we do this. We need one another so that we can help point one another up to Christ. So, so just putting it all together, Here's the heartbeat of Paul in Colossians. He says, hey, don't let any kind of false teaching or anything that comes in and tries to add or take away from the gospel of Christ that tries to cast your gaze somewhere else and into the things of earth, don't let that come and infiltrate you. Don't fall prey to these teachings. We walk with Christ and in him we experience the fullness of God. And he's the only way. It's not about any kind of external rules or disciplines. It's not by any man-made rules or regulations. It's all focused on Christ. It's us walking with Christ. It's us setting our minds and our hearts to Christ. It's us, it's us believing and knowing and reminding ourselves that we're hidden in Christ. It's us looking to Christ to help us put to death the old way of life. It's us looking to Christ to ha have him imprint his nature and his character on us. It's us doing this all with a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ is the central focus of everything. And so Christian, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are you walking in the ways of your old life? Do you find yourself giving way to sexual morality and anger and wrath and the things that are inconsistent with the standard of God? Do you find yourself falling back into your old ways. You need to understand that that is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. So you look to him. Through him, you put to death the old and you put on the new. In this life, we know we'll never be perfect. We know we're gonna stumble, we're gonna fall, we're gonna revert back to our old identity, but we do have confidence because of verses like Philippians 1.6 where he says, he who began a good work in you we'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We know that there will be a day when Christ will return in full glory. He will retrieve his bride and we will live in eternity in full glory with him. And so we cling to this hope. We set our minds on this hope and we allow that to help us fight to put to death the old and to put on the things of God. Now, though we are perfect or we will never be perfect in this life, 
the life of the Christian does absolutely mean putting to death the old ways of life. The, the Christian's not perfect, but when followers of Jesus fall into sin and, and give way to this old life, there's this conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit that dwells within them. There's this holy discontentment that leads to repentance. And so if you are someone who has never been broken over your sin, someone who's never had this holy discontentment with your sin that's led to repentance, you've got to ask yourself if you are truly hidden in Christ. Because when you're hidden in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you that helps you walk and know you're not perfect, but you will, you will repent of that sin and turn back to Christ. And we need to understand that apart from Christ, our condition is alienated and far from God. That we are in the dominion of darkness, that we have a record of our trespasses that, that show our rebellion against God and we are destined for his wrath. But if that is your reality, you need to understand that you too can have new life. You too can have new identity. Uh, the, the pastor and theologian, uh, Charles Spurgeon, re recounts a time when he was a young boy and he was feeling the weight of this sin. He was feeling the weight of, of being far from God and he was seeking ways to, to get it off of him and to find his way out of it. And he decided one, one snowy day to go into this church and he found this little small rural church with only a handful of people in it. He said the pastor must have been snowed out because he wasn't there. And some deacon who was pretty uneducated had to, had to come in and, and he taught that morning. And when he, he taught from this passage that says, look unto me and be saved. And he said he was stumbling his way through it and he starts explaining it and saying, hey, looking don't take a whole lot of doing. Looking don't take raising a finger. It doesn't take raising a foot. Uh, you don't need to go to college to look. You just look. And he says, we look unto God. We look unto Christ. Christ saying, look unto me and be saved. Look at, at my great drops of blood falling. Look at me hanging on the cross. Look unto me as I ascend to heaven and raised from the grave. Look at me as I sit at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And when the, the deacon had kind of got to the end of his rope and was running out of words, uh, Spurgeon said he, he looked up and he saw young Charles Spurgeon sitting there. And he said, young man, you look miserable. He said, you look miserable and you will always be miserable in life or death unless you look unto Christ and obey this text. And Charles Spurgeon said that for the first time, his eyes were open. That he came into that church expecting 50 different things that he was gonna have to do to work his way out of it and realize that he couldn't actually do that. And all that it was gonna take was that he cast his gaze to Christ. And in Christ, as he trusted in him, he got a newness of life. He said, I could have sang and danced in that moment in that church. If you are someone who is far from God, feeling the weight of your sin, who've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I hope and I pray that you will look to Christ, that you will look to him and trust in his life and death and resurrection, and that you will receive this newness of life, that you'll have the Holy Spirit come and indwell you, the very presence of God that'll bring you joy and peace beyond all understanding, that you will have an eternity that is secured where you will dwell in the presence of your God forever and ever and ever. I hope you'll do that. My, my hope 
and my prayer for, for us as a church is that we would be a people with our gaze set to Christ and that that would impact every aspect of our lives.